Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Ashley Rinsberg. Ashley is an American novelist and journalist now based in Israel. His book is The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting, Distortions, and Fabrications Radically Alter History. We discuss the little-known history of major errors made by the New York Times. We talk about the concept of authority. We talk about what makes the Times different from other papers. We talk about the idea of objective truth. We talk about the many problems with the 1619 Project. We talk about the media and publishing industries. And finally, we talk about how to determine what's true in the world. So without further ado, Ashley Rinsberg. All right, Ashley Rinsberg. Thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you for having me, Coleman. So uh, you've published a book called The Gray Lady Winks or The Gray Lady Winked. Yeah, past tense, yeah. And it's a pretty interesting book. I think there's going to be a lot in here that is going to surprise people about the history of the New York Times making really massive and consequential errors on the most important stories of the 20th century. And we'll get to all of that. But first, can you give my listeners a sense of who you are, where you're from, and how you came to be interested in this topic? I um, I grew up in the U.S. mostly. I sort of had a childhood of uh, a lot of moving around, just kind of immigrants. We were immigrants to the U.S. from my parents were from. I was born in South Africa. My grandparents were refugees that fled there before the Holocaust. And then my parents left and came to America, and we ended up in California. And I think when you move around that much, which is the five or six cities in my childhood, and different houses. And you just, for me, at least it gave me this sense of wanting to explore and, you know, seeking, like you're, you're looking for something when you feel like you're always moving, nothing's ever the same. And I got to Tel Aviv. I continued the tradition that my parents had created for us by getting a job on a sailboat right after college, a year and a half after college to work as a deckhand for a couple months, sailing the boat from it, from Italy, from Sardinia to Greece. And when it ended, I moved onward east to Tel Aviv, where I just started to get interested in the way the world is portrayed by the media. This was the tail end of the Second Intifada, and it was definitely not a good time uh, for Israel or, or for anybody in the region. But the reality that I discovered on the ground was so different than what I had, quote unquote, learned from the news. And, you know, this is just a general notion of, of seeking what's real and what's true. And I think that's something that a lot of people around me were trying to do in their own way as well. I mean, maybe some more successfully than others. But for me, it was a lot about books. It was a lot about diving into books. That was always my refuge as a kid and still today. And in this case, I was just reading 
a book I picked up, which was The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shirer, who was a great journalist in Europe in the 1930s and 40s, one of Murrow's boys. And in the book, he kind of mentions this little offhand remark about the New York Times publishing a story at the outset of World War II, claiming that Germany had been invaded by Poland and Germany was just kind of retaliating for the incursion. And uh, this was like one of these things. The New York Times was printing this story on September 1st, 1939, the Declaration of Hostilities on its front page lead story, farthest right column. And this was one of those like record scratching, stop in your tracks moment, even though it was a very small it was a footnote and just a mention in the footnote. And I was just like gobsmacked. I was like, could this possibly be the case that the New York Times, the great bastion of liberalism in American journalism, prints effectively what's obviously on the face of it, Nazi propaganda. And it was the case. It is the case. I dove into that question of how that happened. And what I turned up in that specific instance really shocked me. I think it would probably shock anybody concerning how the New York Times covered the Nazis for 10 years and why. But then I continued into this narrative on trying to understand how this great newspaper, the you know vessel for truth in America, and I think other parts of the world too, how it had not just misreported, because you can make a mistake and that's just being a person, but how it had done this over and over and over in ways that changed history. And then rather than holding themselves to account or even acknowledging what they had done in many cases, they just continued to do the same thing over again. That really was the core of it. And thinking about media, thinking about the way our reality is shaped around us. And that's kind of what ended up with The Grey Lady Winked, which is also in a way a sort of jumping off point to other things that I'm, I'm now doing. And the other episodes you talk about in the book are pretty much equally shocking examples of the New York Times getting major the reporting of major atrocities wrong, things that are just not even controversial anymore, like the idea that there was a famine in the Ukraine that killed, I'm not exactly sure what the number is, but... Between five and seven million. Right, between the Holodomor, as they call it. You know, the notion that that happened is not at all controversial and hasn't been for a long time, but the New York Times was on the wrong side of that one. And uh, the treatment of Fidel Castro, you talk about, uh, you also talk about more recent errors that that are kind of more often talked about, such as whether Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and this kind of stuff. And you also, you end by discussing the 1619 Project and the factual errors about American history that have been allowed to remain and you tie these all together as examples of the paper of record, the most, probably the most respected still paper in America and one of the most respected papers around the world, getting large things wrong and seeming to not suffer a serious reputational price for that. I think it's, it's definitely true in the past few years that the New York Times has lost authority with a lot of readers. I don't know how much a lot is, but definitely the audience of this podcast is, you're going to be preaching to the choir probably in terms of talking to smart people that nevertheless doubt the New York Times, not because they're generally conspiratorial or they think you know everything is a lie and chemtrails, blah, 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 but because they've observed pattern of mistakes that are deep enough and damning enough to make you doubt the 
the system that's that's continually making those mistakes. You're freezing on me a little bit here. So I guess one question I had reading this book is about the sense of authority that the New York Times has. And authority is a is an interesting concept because it's something that it's a little bit hard to describe exactly what it is, but it's just the sense that people believe what you're saying because of who they know you to be. You know, when you're a kid, your parents have authority. They seem to be masters of the world and they just understand everything so much better than you. As you part of becoming an adult is your parents lose authority and, and you gain it, but it's not something that you just turn a switch and someone loses. And there's also this problem of everyone knows that arguments from authority are technically a fallacy, right? To say that X is true because Y said it is you know, just like fallacy, illogic 101. But at the same time, it's a practical necessity to rely on arguments from authority sometimes because the chain has to stop somewhere. If, if someone keeps asking why and you're a normal person, you have to say, well, because I read it in a scientific paper and I trust that they're not lying. I trust that they didn't fabricate their data or I trust that the fact checkers, I trust that the buck has to stop somewhere and someone's being truthful because, so I guess one question I had reading this is, given that the New York Times has made egregious errors of the kind that would probably permanently stain most institutions, why did it, why has it sort of retained this sense of legitimacy and authority to the degree that it has? That's the, that's a great question. And that's the, um, that's the weird twist here is that when you start to really look at all this stuff, all these different episodes that I report on in my book, other things that people are catching on to, other journalists are, are criticizing for errors or, or misreporting or online. What you start to understand is that the New York Times has succeeded because of those things. It succeeds and it, those things happen because of its drive to succeed, to be number one more specifically. They have been, when you, when you go and look through what has been the through line of all these different things, the World War II reporting that I mentioned, which was very, very sympathetic to the Nazis, calling the Berlin Olympics, the, the Nazi Olympics, the greatest sporting event of all time, calling Hitler uh, or saying he was actuated by a lofty and unselfish patriotism, calling the Munich Accords, the a freshening breeze across a conference table, you know, and that's just one of these episodes. But what connects them all is that the New York Times was always willing, not just willing, compelled to do whatever it takes to get the best scoops. And that's why they kept this Nazi sympathizing Berlin bureau chief in place, even though they knew what he was, because they knew he had the best access. And that was, of course, because the Nazis loved him. When you look at well, weapons of mass destruction, what drove that, that hyperventilation of, by the New York Times over WMDs in Iraq when there was never any good sourcing to believe there was, was that they had a new editor who was determined to increase the newspaper's what he called competitive metabolism to make them number one. And for them, they were at a turning point where they were becoming, going from being a metropolitan, somewhat regional newspaper to a national newspaper. And that was about being one, number one in the United States because they understood correctly that in this new future that in which we have the internet, thousands of other sources, there would be only one real major player. And they were going to be, and that, that meant having to report falsely on WMDs to get the scoop. 
then let's just take the risk. If that meant then having Jason Blair and a series of other reporters after this swing the pendulum back in the other way, in some cases by claiming that veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan were homicidal maniacs, despite there being no evidence or data to support that whatsoever, they would do that too, because that was about the brand. Again and again and again, and that goes back even to the Soviet Union and the Ukraine famine. They were willing to do what it took to get those scoops. And Walter Durante, who was the the New York Times Russia correspondent that actually did the cover-up, he got his personal invitation as an American journalist from Joseph Stalin to interview Stalin. And that was like getting a one-on-one interview with Kim Jong-un, you know, like you times 10. It was all about access. And there was also a financial consideration in that particular case as well, which we can touch on later. But that's why is because they have invested so much in staying number one, including in many cases, their integrity, that they achieve that. And where other newspapers and news organizations were not willing to go that far. They were not willing to work hand in hand with the Soviet Union and then 10 years later, essentially do the same thing with the Nazis. And 10 years later, with Fidel Castro in Cuba. And 10 years later, in Vietnam. So that's essentially the reason. So I guess that may partly answer the question, but why the New York Times? What separates the New York Times here? Is it just that they are the top dog in this space? And that's why you're interested in focusing on them? Or is there some other thing that separates them from their major competitors like the Wall Street Journal and so forth? The New York Times, I think there's two things here. The New York Times is, of course, the most powerful news organization in America and maybe pound for pound the most powerful, most influential uh, news brand in the world. I mean, you, you can go all around the world and talk about the New York Times and people be like, yeah, I know what that is you're not necessarily going to get that kind of brand resonance with the Financial Times or even to some extent the BBC. This is an icon. And it is also the flagship news outlet of the American media. It's got twice as many Pulitzer Prizes as its next closest competitor, the Washington Post. It is the pinnacle for journalists. That's where they want to be. It's where they want to spend their careers if they can. And that, again, is it's it's that level of influence that makes it truly unique, that they're able to not just set the policy agenda, set the news agenda. They're essentially shaping reality. I mean, they are syndicated and licensed to thousands of other news organizations around the globe, and um, they just command that respect and power among the right people. But on the other side, the second part of that is what this reveals as well. I mean, there was, that's part of the cause, but what, is this, what does this show us? And partly, I think, for me, is that the New York Times is really the template of corporate media. In They really had perfected that structure of news for profit that is controlled by a single family. And that's also what makes it unique. Still today, this is a, a dynasty that stretches back 120 years from the founders, a man named Adolf Ox, a German uh, Jew who immigrated to America. So from this one, the pioneer of the dynasty, right through today, the Sulzbergers who not just control the newspaper, but actually are actively involved as publisher, the, the current heir to the throne, A.G. Sulzberger, is the publisher of the newspaper and the chairman of the New York Times Company. So that shows you a lot about how corporate media works. 
And when you're analyzing stories today, really big stuff like the pandemic and lab leak and the steel dossier, and you see it through the prism of this one unique news organization that has so much power and influence and has this corporate media structure, you really learn a lot about how these things work and what the incentives are and where things go wrong and where the, the safety mechanisms completely fail. So that to me is, is why I started. And it's also why I continue to look through the New York Times lens. Yeah, there is a trade-off between profit-seeking and integrity in many pursuits in life. I mean, this is just one example. And I, I know you've talked about sort of the, the competition between the incentives of the ownership of New York Times and the incentives of the rank and file, which include many great journalists and fact checkers and hardworking people of integrity and so forth. So when you write a book that is essentially a pretty much a, a moral takedown of the New York Times of, of the, in the, during the 20th and early 21st century, who are you, where are you laying the blame? Like with who are you laying the blame? Definitely with the family that controls that newspaper. The Salzburgers, it runs to the top. The responsibility runs all the way up the flagpole and there's no escaping that. They could shape that organization any way they want to. And that is exactly what they've done. They've created this two-tier stock structure that gives the family control, preserves control, which it restricts the democratic nature of the organization. And that might be okay if you are selling whatever you might be selling, widgets, catgut, uh, livestock feed, whatever it is. But when you're dealing in the truth, when the product is by their own admission, this is at their actual marketing campaign, the truth, then that's a problem because you don't have the natural democratizing effect of multiple stakeholders, multiple voices, multiple interests and perspectives that I think a news organization requires not just in the newsroom, but in the ownership structure as well. So I think that's one structural piece of it. The other piece, which is more of a temporal piece today, is that there has been a change in the newsroom. The newsroom used to be classically liberal, and that applied to its journalistic mores as well. My friend, Jenny Holland, who used to work at the Times, talks about this editor there. And he was not a big deal. It was some regular rank and file editor who refused to vote because he held his job in this sacrosanct light that he, anything that would kind of tip his scales, his internal scales of neutrality and impartiality one way or the other was for him a no-go. And that's just unimaginable today in media in general, but especially at the times where there's been this woke awakening and at the times lurching to the hard left to the point that people who are, tell me, call themselves lifelong New York Times subscribers don't read the paper anymore. I've had countless emails of people coming to say, I mean, these are older people. And that's also by design. I mean, the New York Times, the ownership knows very well that it's classically liberal, upper West side audience is aging out and they are looking to a new future where they're really dependent on subscriptions and not on advertising. And that's going to be with younger, politically energized people that they see being on the hard left, the people who are fired up enough about the issues to plunk down their 
10 bucks a month or whatever it is forever in perpetuity, basically. That's what, that's what the New York Times needs to, for its business to thrive. And that, of course, goes back to the share price and to this family. So that's where the cycle closes between ideology and financial interest. You make a really good point about how the, the corporate structure of the New York Times, which wouldn't be a problem in many other cases, is a problem when the, the product allegedly is the truth. Of course, concretely, the product is, used to be newspapers and, and increasingly it's clicks and attention. And that necessarily is not aligned with, with the truth, right? To value the truth would necessarily be to trade off against getting clicks. I mean, like, what are the odds that human beings as flawed as we are want only the truth and we want nothing more than that? And what grabs our attention perfectly aligns with what's true and what's journalistically ethical to say. So, but at the same time, in the long run, we do at least our better selves, we want to pay money to a newspaper for it to tell us true things. We don't, at least anyone, anyone who thinks about it and gets past their initial limbic system reaction to something wants to be told what's true in the long run, even if it's something they don't totally want to hear at first. Because the idea of giving $10 a month to someone for them to tell me what I want to hear in every case, that's not true, so that I can live my life misled and die knowing less than, than I did when I was born, it, it, that's, that's really sad. And so ultimately, the authority we give all of these places boils down to their ability to kind of delay their own profit gratification and say what's true in order to preserve their long-term status as a trustworthy news organization. And I would hope that 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 is also a profitable strategy in the long run. I'm not actually sure that that it is, but they do. It's interesting because a place like the New York Times, they have to pay homage to the notion of objective truth at some level because the only reason to trust one paper over another is the idea that they are giving you something that's objectively true. Right? They're not just giving you their opinion. Yes, there's an op-ed page, but they're, the work that they do is to distinguish capital F, capital F fact from capital F fiction. That is, I mean, there, there's no such thing as really caring about journalism if you don't believe that. And there's, there's no such thing as paying money to a newspaper and reading the newspaper if at some level you don't believe you believe that they're doing something other than just telling you a story right there. But at the same time, the New York Times has gotten into bed with people that have a far less, a far weaker connection to objective truth. And in some cases are enthralled to critical race theory and relativism and the idea that objective truth is just a Trojan horse for white supremacy. Anyone, anytime someone talks about objectivity, what they're really saying is this is what straight white male, this is what the straight white male narrative says. And we don't like people of color. We don't like women. We don't like LGBTQ people. And so we're going to pretend that this is the objective truth, right? And, and I, I noticed at one point that the New York Times during, I don't know if they're still running this campaign, but during the Trump presidency, we're running a campaign. I think the slogan was the truth is worth it. 
and this is obviously, this was obviously a dig at Trump who pretty much lied like every other sentence out of his mouth. He just lied at a rate that was impressive even for politicians. And so I think the New York Times feeling itself to be the resistance saying, well, the truth has never been more important. It's the truth with a capital T. It's not my truth. It's not Trump's truth. It's the truth versus Trump's lies. So there is very much this notion that we, we are the defenders of objectivity in the face of this guy that is constantly lying and trying to get you to not care about what's true anymore. Yet at the same time as they were running this campaign, they were running the 1619 Project, which as you go, you, we can go over the details of what was wrong in the 1619 Project in, in a second. But in response to the attacks on the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones who was sort of constantly tweeting in self-defense, she would say things like, and I, I'm pretty sure these are direct quotes from her Twitter that she has since deleted, there's no such thing as objective history. She would say things like, there's no such thing as objective history. And so the same newspaper was saying, essentially, there's one truth and we're getting to it. We're trying to get to it to help resist Trump. And also there's no such thing as objective truth and if there's flaws in the 1619 project, we're not presenting it as if it's the final say. This is just our truth. This is the truth um, of black people and the non-elected spokesman for black people that write on our behalf and so forth. So what do you have to say about the New York Times relationship to the truth? Well, just to pull the curtain back and take a look at the the wizard, that campaign, truth matters, the truth is worth it. And by the way, when they say worth it, they're talking about the cost of the subscription. Mm -hmm. The truth is worth, the truth is worth your $6 a month. Mm -hmm. Um, That campaign was created for them by Droga5, which is the top advertising agency in the US. I mean, they're, they're the elite, like the SEAL Team 6 of advertising. That was an ad campaign that was created it was something that they, the ad agency, these guys were clocking on to the rise of the term fake news in American culture. And that's just a beautiful opportunity that aligns neatly with the brand. Case in point is that the 1619 Project, which was so riddled with major errors that its own fact checkers or, or the scholars that were being used by their fact checkers on important claims in the project were writing pieces, one in Politico saying they fact-checked me, they used me to fact-check this huge claim in this case that the American Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery, which is something the 1619 Project claimed. And the fact-checker is a professor at Northwestern of African-American history, said, you can't say that, it's just not true. And they said it anyway. And the reason that they were able to proceed with this stuff is, number one, Because the 1619 Project is a centerpiece of their marketing mix. it's They're not dumping all this money into the 1619 Project just because they think the ideas are nifty. They are looking at this as a financial investment, and they're open about that. They they spoke with a senior vice president or vice president of the New York Times company, spoke openly about the fact that that 1619 Project is essentially a brand initiative as part of the larger Truth Matters campaign. And when you say, okay, well, let's reverse engineer that and look at the 1619 project and what it was really doing, exactly what you mentioned about Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is the creator of the project. 
who didn't feel a need to adhere to any notion of not just objective truth. We could use a different term. We could talk about a common truth or just, you know, the basic getting to the fundamentals of consensus in a way that's impartially derived. She rejects that because that's not her project. Her project is to use the academic, the intellectual tools of critical theory, which transforms the truth from a thing out there that we all try to approximate. I don't think anyone of us actually gets the quote unquote objective truth. We're all doing our best to contribute to an approximation of that thing that's objectively existing out there and transforming that into a notion of truth as a a political means to the end of power. Um, And that's what critical theory is about. Truth, according to critical theory, is whatever helps to emancipate oppressed people. That's it's the, the most simple statement of how they see the truth. And I think that's exactly what Nicole Hannah-Jones, a view, a worldview she subscribes to. And with the 1619 Project, that mechanism of critical theory didn't just give her license or the ability to create the project and sustain it and make it the huge success that it is in its world. But I think it goes, the causality goes the other way around as well, which is that the 1619 Project allows something like critical theory to exist in the world in this very practical and impactful way. They are changing the notion of what truth is by teaching the 1619 Project and the other way around as well. So that's the scary thing. And the real reason it's scary is because people out there aren't stupid. They see the New York Times picking up the truth and using it as a cudgel to pound their ideological adversaries. And those same people, many of them with motivations that are not quite as pure as the New York Times, they will do the same thing. They will pick up the truth and they will use it as a weapon. And when we lose that mutually, that mutual commitment to doing our best to come close to truth or respecting it as a value that's independent of our own wishes and desires, then we venture to really dangerous territory. And that's exactly where we are, I think, in the U.S. and possibly in other places, but certainly it looks like in the U.S. Yeah. And just to remind everyone of how embarrassing this was or should have been for the New York Times, the 1619 Project was being put together and they were, most of the people writing these long articles were not themselves historians. So they got a team of historians to fact check all of the claims. And of course, they, they weren't choosing conservative historians to begin with, right? They were choosing historians that were no doubt qualified and in every sense up to the task, but they weren't choosing historians they thought would be unfriendly to begin with. And then at least one of these historians who happened to be a black woman, although it, it shouldn't matter, basically said, no, there, there's no way it's true or, or accurate to say that one of the main reasons that the 13 colonies rebelled against Britain was to preserve slavery. That's just a historically inaccurate claim. You can't say that. And then they said, well, you know what? Fuck you. We're saying it anyway. And, and then eventually she came out with uh, an article after many other historians had already objected to the claim saying, listen, they hired me to fact check this. I said it was wrong. They did it anyway. And I have to clear my conscience. I have to come clean about this, though I support the wider aims of the project. That's more or less what she said. And uh, I think still, you know, this is one of those cases where most people are only paying attention to the headline. So 
and to the sort of the initial wave of excitement about something, they don't read the embarrassing truth that comes out six months later. So, you know, the, the flurry of excitement about the 1619 project and celebrities talking about it and the, the, all of the work that was done put into the launch of that very successful initiative. Most casual New York Times readers, they just saw, oh, they, New York Times did this really cool thing. And maybe they sort of read Nicole's flagship essay and said, oh, that's interesting that part of the reason the 13 colonies rebelled was because of the aim to protect slavery. And doesn't that say something really damning about the identity of this country? They're not paying attention to the Politico article months later. That is totally embarrassing um, to the project. And so what most people remember of that is just the 1619 project was a cool and important and sort of groundbreaking thing that the New York Times did. And I hope that it's in my son or daughter's history class. And this is something that just happens over and over. It's people not really paying attention to the fallout of of stories. And um, I guess this is kind of a question that relates to all of the other errors you go through in the book. Why isn't it widely known talking point that the New York Times was soft on Hitler and all of these other things? Like, why isn't this widely talked about? I think it's one of those those things that only one example of something, even if it's a trend or phenomenon that's really important, impactful, only the one representative thing rises to the surface. In this case, it would be Walter Duranti and his cover-up of the Ukraine famine at the behest of the New York Times, we should add. And I think that's part of it. The other part of it has to do with the New York Times' influence and their power. Again, it's where every journalist wants to be, wants to go. If they're in mainstream corporate media, that's the peak. And if your aim is to do that, then, you know, why would you go and dig up this dirt about the New York Times from 80 years ago? It's not in anybody's interest to do that and certainly not to publish it. So who's going to do it? This stuff is out there in bits and pieces. But when I went to publish this book, I was having people who were very high level agents, editors, publishers, what have you, just straight up tell me, oh, I can't. I can't go up against the New York Times. They'll, you know, they'll kill me. The New York Times' bestseller list is easily by far the most important book marketing tool in the world. You say New York Times bestseller, you've already got cachet. You've got mm-hmm. sales. Nobody wants to mess with them in that way. So it takes some kind of motivation and it takes someone willing to just say, all right, screw it, I'll do it. And in that case is what it was for me when it came to publish the book. I'm like, this is gonna, this might hurt a little because it's, you know, I'm not going to be welcomed open-armed into the embrace, the warm embrace of the American media for doing this. And I think that's partly why it is. The other reason, of course, is that the New York Times doesn't talk about these things. When it came to the Pulitzer Prize that Walter Durante was absurdly given for his denial of the Ukraine famine, the Times was being pressured by the Ukrainian-American community around 2003 to give it back, to rescind it, to say this was not won legitimately and we do not deserve it. Um, it's not part of our tally of Pulitzers. And they hired a consultant who was a, a historian to assess the situation. You know, it's like this big mystery, what he would recommend. And lo and behold, he's like, yeah, you should give it back. And they said, no. The publisher then, who's the father of the publisher today, wrote a letter to the board saying that to return that prize would be an act that would too closely resemble Soviet airbrushing of history. And you're just like, wait, what? 
it was Duranti who airbrushed history in your newspaper. And again, at your behest or the behest of, in this case, his grandfather, the, that publisher's grandfather. And uh, he's claiming that to, to address it, to correct the record was the act of airbrushing. And that kind of moral jujitsu is something they're really good. I think they're, they're really good, you know, writing this like really cool looking spread in, in 1978 or whatever it was about why they didn't cover the Holocaust at, at the New York Times, why in six years they printed six front page stories and then do the nice little kind of, you know, retrospective one time so they can point at it, but not really grapple with the fact that the America's most important newspaper buried all but covered up the greatest genocide of the 20th century, the most awful genocide of the 20th century. They would not come back to that in a manner that is even partially proportionate to what they're doing with the 1619 Project in the scope. If you look at the amount of media, the amount of coverage they give to the project, the different formats of podcast, the deals with Oprah, you name it. And meanwhile, the Holocaust and the New York Times' role in covering it up at the same time that they had a Nazi as their bureau chief in Berlin gets one story written by a former editor in the mid-1970s or something, and they'll just leave it at that. So that's partly why. They continue to cover these things up, and they do quite a good job of it because it's an ecosystem, and they are they are one of the most important organisms in that ecosystem, and nobody wants to go knocking on that door. So I, I want to talk a little more about publishing in a minute, and I, I understand you self-published this book. Is, is that right? Yeah, I basically, yeah, yeah we should talk more about that. Yeah, but, but before I get to that, I just want to make an observation here. It's one that I've made before, but uh, there is, there's this common argument made. It's usually by people on the left uh, about institutions, particular institutions or America as a whole, which is to observe that an institution was conceived in some kind of sin, whether it's that the police started out as slave patrols or the criminal justice system started out in this way or uh, you know slavery was present at the birth of the nation and therefore this institution is eternally stained by the sin that it was conceived in and this is the central thrust of of for instance the 1619 project is that because the fa- many of the founders owned slaves. Many of the founders were racist. Uh, that therefore, the Constitution, the founding documents, it's all stained by its association with those things. I'm pretty astounded at how this argument only ever seems to be thrown at institutions that the left doesn't like. It's not always, you know, sometimes you see people on the right doing this back. So for instance, someone like Candace Owens will point out that Planned Parenthood, one of their co-founders sort of flirted with eugenics and isn't it that should change your opinion of the moral status of Planned Parenthood today. I mean, the truth is with all of these arguments, unless you can really draw a straight line between what this institution was however many hundreds of years ago and what it is today and show them making the same kind of mistakes or show them being the same of the same moral character, then it's not really, re- I mean, institutions change. And so to point out a mistake they made a long time ago is not necessarily to condemn them today. But, and moreover, just everyone 
everyone is going to get, every institution is going to get destroyed if we play this game. Right. And so I'm interested why people don't play this game with the New York Times. You know, like if you're a person that is really compelled by these sorts of arguments that such and such organization, don't you know the founder was a pedophile or like 200 years ago? By this logic, the New York Times is a morally defunct organization. And truth is most of the people that are compelled by these kinds of arguments are the kinds of people that think the New York Times is generally a good organization. And my point here, to be very clear, is not that the New York Times getting Nazi Germany wrong uh, makes it bad now. It's actually the opposite. It's that these sorts of arguments, which are generally leveled against right-wing institutions and against the right, are invalid and I think the moment you think about it, they can only really be used cynically. Like you you can't really believe that an organization's origins set it on a course that makes it bad today because nothing ever changes. So this is just an observation I wanted to make. And I'm curious if you see this happening as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's very much the case. I think that people are making this argument only cynically, at least those who are generating the argument. I think there is the, the phenomenon that you had alluded to earlier, where you just see the top line story or the narrative in, you know, catch a glimpse of it. And you're like, oh, oh my God, the so-and-so had a, was a slave owner and therefore, and they pick up on that. But I do think the people who are creating these arguments are doing it cynically. I don't think it's about a true accounting. I, I do think it's about a reckoning and a reckoning is about power. I mean, it's about shifting power and they're doing it quite successfully. I think that if that conversation had was had in good faith, it would be a, a very good one. These things should be talked about. They should not mm-hmm. be kept hidden. They should. They are important, of course. Have the conversations, great. And let's see how the organizations are different and point that out and recognize that no organization is perfect. But what is really going on is a search for ideological purity. These are these are purity tests and like all purity tests, it is a mechanism of power. It's an instrument of power. So with the Times, I think it's, it's the same thing. I mean, th- there was actually a story a few weeks or months back about a founder of the New York Times, who was previous to the current dynasty, was a slave owner as well. <laughs> so there you go. But of course, that was a little blip in conservative media. And the reason being is because ABC, NBC, CBS, Bloomberg, FT, you know, Daily Beast, name whatever other outlet you want to, didn't cover it because they have no incentive to. And again, that's where we come back to this notion of perverse incentives and what's really going on in the media and how much financial agendas as well as ideological agendas affect that landscape. Yeah. So speaking of the publishing landscape, so you wrote this book before you had a publisher. Yeah, I just wrote, I was, I was actually- Which is really generally the, the first piece of advice they give you is not to do that. Yeah, so I was living in Israel. This was like, I don't know, 15 years ago. I was, I was in my mid-20s and I was just interested in this topic and sat down for a year in a cafe. Basically, I had a, I had a side job and, and read these books and did the research and wrote the book not thinking about what might be a pathway to anything. And then once I had it done, I said, I started to shop it around. And that's where I just came up against these walls. It was also a different time. It was at that point, a much more parochial topic. It was much more like inside baseball, where today this is all anybody's talking about is truth in media. But when it came to bringing the book out now, it was really about independence. It was really about 
not having to change your work and change your material and give up your rights, you know, the, the proverbial masters to the album and in return get very, very little from a publisher in the best of cases and in other cases kind of get screwed. So I have enough experience in and around publishing from my career. I've worked in marketing disciplines for 10 plus years as well as paying, paying the bills, writing other books. And I decided that I could hire the people I needed to hire. I could hire the editors and the fact checkers and the proofreaders and the great, great cover designer who I hired and create something on my own, which to me felt very, very satisfying, but also very important that I was able to say, because the industry had said to me, no, we don't accept these ideas. And then I could come back and say, well, that's good for you guys. I'm just going to do this my way. And I think that's a message that people are kind of like, it's really resonating. I think there's, you know, we've all heard this topic, this concept of the sovereign individual. And I think the sovereign creator is part and parcel to that, that ever, to be a complete individual, you have to have that creative element inside of you and to get it out. And that is an act of establishing sovereignty as an individual, establishing wholeness. And that's very much what this process has done for me, as difficult as it is to do something like that by yourself, it's, which is really, it's uphill, but worth it. Yeah. I mean, as a, someone who's independent content creator too, I, I totally get that. But I think there is... And I guess the, one of the consequences of these media establishments, corporate media, getting things wrong is that there is, you know, as I think as, as you put it elsewhere, there's really, there's no beating the truth. You know, like you can, you can create a narrative if you're a powerful media organization like the New York Times. But ultimately, if you get things wrong and you choose to sacrifice the truth for clicks or for profit, that has a side effect of creating a market for content creators that will basically enter that void and say, I'm going to, I'm going to speak to the people that are seeing the same thing I'm seeing with the, these organizations and who are also feeling that these places are losing authority. And, um, you know, over time, I mean, one would hope that that sort of eats into their profit in the long run, but I'm, I'm not totally sure to what extent that's true. But I admire you for self-publishing. I mean, it's a, the, the publishing industry is another place that is sort of rife for disruption and very much set in its ways and that has incentives that are also in many ways misaligned with the truth. That's something I, I know a little bit about. Yeah, I, I just interviewed um, for my podcast, which is called the Burning Castle podcast, the great, great author of fiction, Lionel Shriver, who is probably one of the only really serious and, and you know, top tier novelists who is a conservative. And she and I were just talking about how publishing is, a, is what was once called a gentleman's club, which meant it was all, it was about the kind of the perpetuation of the inner elite and, you know, thumbing through newspapers in the club in an overstuffed leather chair and profits will, yeah, sure. Profits will come, profits will go. And that's like the, it's a very strange thing to see, especially when you see this industry that's, that's really taken a hit over the last 10, 20 years is that they are putting ideology. They're putting political fads ahead of their own profits because they are not tapping the potential of the real audience. 
and what that act, that audience really wants in their fiction, in nonfiction, in poetry, in every other aspect. And the news media has done exactly the same thing. You look at the ratings, you look at the readerships, you look at the subscriptions. It's all nosediving. And of course, there's a long-term trend there, but there are also short-term trends like CNN just going all in on activism for the last five, six years, at very least, probably much longer than that. And the audience is responding saying, no, thanks. We'll just go somewhere else where we feel we can trust the sources that we're not being manipulated according to someone else's agenda. And um, and again, we'll as news consumers, we'll do it our way. As book readers, we'll do it our way. And I think that is that huge risk to these industries like news and publishing is that these are gatekeeper industries and people are really learning that you can just kind of go around the gate. You can just like walk around it and go to the other side. And it's, it's kind of the same thing. It doesn't have the fanfare and the blasting trumpets, but um, you can just get to the same place. And so even in some ways simpler, maybe not easier, but it's, it's a simpler path. So that is the risk and publishing has already been disrupted. I mean, the amount of money that's going into publish self-publishing today in platforms like Ingram, uh, Amazon KDP is astounding. I mean, we are talking billions and billions of dollars and, and it's growing. And the nature of what a publisher is, is also changing, which is something that Balaji Srinivasan, who's very important voice in, in this space as well, talks about bundling and unbundling. And publishing had been a bundled industry, had been bundling different kinds of resources and distribution channels. And now that's all been being and been unbundled. The distribution channels are unbundled. The resources are unbundled. The, the landscape has been flattened. So that's very, very encouraging, I think, for news, for entertainment, for all form of media, for publishing as well. Yeah. So my final question, basically, I think, I think a lot of listeners to this podcast are people that are very interested in knowing what's true, but also don't have all day to dedicate their lives to finding out what's true, but also people that are more and more aware that you can't just rely on legacy media, that your information diet nowadays, in order to get at what's true, sort of has to be buffet and a constant search. And you can always be surprised by who is wrong on the latest thing and who's right about the latest thing. I mean, just for instance, figuring out what's true about ivermectin and its efficacy over the past six to nine months. It's like, where would you go for the definitive take about what ivermectin, what ivermectin does to people with COVID, right? It's like there's a million different studies that came out, half of which were trash, some of which were good, and so much politicization of the conversation already around vaccines and COVID that it's just very difficult to know who to trust. And then you go to someone like Slate Star Codex, or I guess it's Astral Star Codex now, um, Scott Alexander, I guess that used to be his pseudonym, Scott Alexander, who can publish one of the most high quality meta-analyses on, on the ivermectin literature as a completely independent person. Probably better than anything you're going to read on the issue from the New York Times or the Atlantic or the Wall Street Journal. And then in other cases, you don't want to be, there are other cases where you do, you should trust legacy media because they're getting things right and they're, they're operating on a topic that isn't politicized, where they're just, they just have the top journalists and top fact, fact checkers and they're doing great work and they're coming up with great graphics. 
And, um, and so my question is, what advice do you have for a person that is just trying to get at what's true in the world, doesn't want to be misled, but is aware of the increasing challenge of knowing who to trust? It's two things. I think one thing is the, on the specifics, I think it's really about going on a, going on a media diet, cut out 90% of your media and let the remaining 10% be stuff you truly care about. That's stuff that really matters to you. And those are the things that you're going to have to search for rather than browse. So at that level, it's about switching your media consumption modality from from browse to search. Don't don't trawl through some website looking for you know headlines that'll kind of give you a kick or thrill or outrage you. Rather than doing that, go search for the topics that mean something to you and go search for the sources that are the Scott Alexanders of those particular topics. And don't just blindly trust any single individual. Find two or three or four, see where they concur, see where they depart from one another. And you yourself will approximate the truth in your own way, but you have to do it with good faith. That's the caveat. It can't be like, let me go and try convince my aunt in Detroit that Trump is really good or conversely that Trump is really evil. Either way, that's not the point. The point is actually to get to the heart of the matter itself, regardless of what that means for anyone politically. But I think in a bigger sense, it's kind of like, it's the notion of practicing truth, you know, practicing truth by reading, reading deeply about things that interest you. And it doesn't have to be politics or economics or sociology or history necessarily. Maybe one of those things, but maybe it's the truth about bird watching, simpler truths. You're practicing the art of truth. You're practicing the art of learning true things. That I think is the real key. That I think is about changing our culture by changing the way we feel about these things that we don't have that burning need to prove the other side wrong, prove yourself right, but going to something that is much more, again, to use that same term, flat level, a place where you can look out at, you know, just a sea of knowledge and perceive what it is, maybe without having complete understanding, but at least experiencing what that's like. And there are so many authors and thinkers and philosophers out there who took on their task with that open-heartedness and that open-mindedness. And when you go and connect with those works and those thinkers and, and philosophers and academics, you're connecting with that experience of the truth. And I think that's really the key element there. And accept that sometimes you don't, you won't know the truth. We may not know the truth about ivermectin and there may not be a so-called truth about it. I mean, maybe there will be, or maybe it'll just be perpetually obscure, but you know, we have, we have this distinction between signal and noise. Sometimes there is only noise. And when there's only noise, turn it off. That I think is another lesson there, which, you know, I, with ivermectin myself, I'm not going to, I personally know I am not going to distinguish what to decipher. What is the reality? What is this? What is the core situation there? I don't have the tools or the time and it was just noise to me. So I just turned it off. And sometimes I hear someone break through Joe Rogan or whoever, but it's not a relevant issue to me. And I'm, I'm okay with that. And I think people need to do that with issues that they find to be just noisy issues. And at the same time, use that silence to fill it with, again, that experience of truthfulness of truth. Yeah, that's, that's excellent advice. All right. So on that note, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on my show. And I hope to have you back again at some point. 
Thank you, Coleman. I would love to. Um, I, you know, I know you're a musician and I was like checking out some of your music, which is really, really cool that uh, you got that whole other world. So, and likewise, I'd love to have you on the Burning Castle because as I was talking today with Lionel Schreiber, what, what we're doing there is talking with people um, who are change makers, but they're doing it through the avenue of creativity, of engaging the creative element in themselves in their own way to drive change in the world. So if you're yeah. up for it ever, I'd be happy I'm, to. I'm, I'm totally up for it. And I, I have a lot of new music coming out next year. Uh, so maybe we can talk about that. But I, I also understand you're a novelist, right? Yes, I am. I am a novelist. And that's what I was doing for, in between writing this book and The Great Lady Winked and bringing it out to the world, I was writing a novel which was, uh, which is inspired by the disappearance and eventual death of my best friend from childhood in uh, Nicaragua and kind of my search for answers in the wake of his death. And, and it actually turned out to be in this weird way because it was well before the woke trend took hold, but it, it became this anti-woke novel, which again, going back to the publishing thing is it's not making me popular there, but, uh, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> so is that, that's not out yet. That's not out. That's I'm still thinking. What's the best way to to bring it into the world? It was such an important journey for me, and a long one and hard one. Yeah. So I want to make sure that I, I make a good decision about that. But yeah, that's fiction is is sort of my first and true love, mm. and always will be. So yeah, cool. So yeah, maybe when our various things start coming out, we can regroup, try to do something again. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be, cool. I'd love to hear more about the music and and what you're doing with that. Sure. All right. All right. Take care, Ashley. Thanks, Corn. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.